climate change will destabilize the physical environment. So yes, we've always had extreme weather. It's going to increase extreme weather in frequency and intensity. Yes, we, we have food and water scarcity around the world. We're going to see more drought and more food insecurity. Yes, there's going to be sea level rise and changing maritime boundaries, but that sea level rise is going to increase faster, particularly with the melting of the Arctic ice caps. Yes, there's going to be health issues, but those are going to be increasing in number and frequency because of vector-borne diseases related to changing climate. That relates to catalyst for conflict, where I think is where the rubber meets the road and where we're seeing this political instability. Um, and I'm happy to talk some more about that, but that's a long way of saying that's how I think about this idea of climate security. Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of NSL Unscripted. I am your host, Major Emily Bobbinreath. Associate Professor in the National Security Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Today, I am so excited to bring Professor Mark Nevitt of Emory University School of Law to our listeners. Professor Nevitt is one of, if not the foremost legal expert at the intersection of climate change and its impact to U.S. national security. Professor Nevitt joined Emory Law in 2022, but prior to then, he served as an Associate Professor at Syracuse University College of Law, taught climate change law and policy at UPenn Law, and was a professor of leadership and law at the U.S. Naval Academy. As a West Point grad, sir, I will just have to forgive you for that one. <laughs> <laughs> he also served 20 years on active duty as both a naval aviator and a Navy judge advocate. I first came across Professor Nevitt's name doing my own research for my graduate course paper about a year ago. And a few months into writing that paper, I just happened to meet him in person at a UVA law event. When I introduced myself to him and explained how my paper also centers on the climate crisis and its security implications, he, without hesitation, offered to take a look and read it. And the time and feedback that he provided are without a doubt the reason it was accepted for publication in this upcoming spring issue of the Army Lawyer. So for that, sir, I am eternally grateful. Thank you. Professor Neverett brings years of practical, operational, and academic expertise on the implications of the climate crisis on our national security, and I'm so excited to bring him to the podcast. Sir, thank you for being here with me today. Great to be with you, Major Bob and Reith. So I want to start with defining the threat. When you ask somebody on the street, perhaps, what the biggest threats to U.S. national security are, I'd venture to say not many people would place climate change at the top of that list, at least not initially. And yet your work and my own research sing a very different tune. So I'd like to first lay a foundational understanding of why climate change is, in fact, a national security issue. Could you please just explain the threat? Sure. So thanks for having me in the program. And kudos to the Army JAG School. I had a lot of fond memories of being at the Army JAG School for outstanding trainings. I still, I think, have my ethics course binder behind me somewhere here at Emory, which I turn to. Uh, and kudos to the National Security Law Department on producing this podcast. I've already listened to a couple episodes, and you're off to a to a, to a great start. So, so your question gets at sort of a the fundamental: how is climate change a, a security issue? And I think that this idea has sort of caught people's attention in recent years, but in many respects, the military has been thinking about climate change for decades. You can go back to papers about rising sea levels and the changing Arctic. 
that dates back to actually to the 1970s and 1980s, largely from actually the Navy and the Naval War College that were looking at sort of changing uh, maritime domain, changing sea levels across across the globe. I think that the climate change as a security issue falls in the category of a non-traditional security threat. And so a lot of your listeners probably are familiar with just the notion of terrorism, which is a non-state actor. That is an outgrowth of this recognition that there's non-state actor and non-traditional security threats. There's also this idea of health security, COVID-19, Ebola, it just showcased that these vulnerabilities to health can impact people's lives in fundamental ways. And, and with COVID-19, we saw massive deployments of the National Guard and the military in response to that. So climate security is sort of in this bucket, I would say, of non-traditional threats. And in some respects, it's an outgrowth of this idea of environmental security that we have to have the conditions right for the environment or fragility and instability can flow. And also, I think it's somewhat related to this idea of protecting the environment in armed conflict. That's sort of how I think of it, sort of a non-traditional threat that sort of pervades and is uh, affecting a lot of existing threats. And when we talk about its impact on existing threats, maybe the more traditional threats, in my research and really the first article I came across when I was writing my paper that you wrote was a 2020 article where you sort of coined these two terms that really resonated with me. You described climate change's impact on national security as both, quote, a threat accelerant and also, quote, a catalyst for conflict. What do those terms mean? Sure. If I could just maybe spend a little bit more time on just the fundamentals of climate change, because I think that it conceptually could be quite difficult. And I'd offer that as sort of three lenses for you and your listeners to think about climate change as, as a security threat. One is mitigation. The second is adaptation. And the third is response. And so mitigation is just the acknowledgement that we must collectively reduce our greenhouse gas emissions the consensus science from both the United States' National Climate Assessment and the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they all indicate that greenhouse gas emissions from human activity are causing the earth to get warmer. So within each military service, we're seeing pretty broad plans in the last year or so to do just that. And the Army, the Navy are committed to going what's called net zero, zero carbon emissions by 2050, very, very ambitious goal. And Within the legal framework of the Paris Climate Agreement, which some of your listeners might be familiar with, the military is not exempt from our contributions, right? And the atmosphere could care less about where those emissions are coming from. And as we know, the Department of Defense is a large employer. And so any sort of serious plan about climate mitigation has to take into account just the emissions that the Department of Defense is emitting. And also somewhat related to this idea of mitigation is this idea of operational energy. This sort of this reliance on fossil fuel on the battlefield and long fossil fuel supply chains is actually harmful to the military mission and undermines the military mission. Former General and Secretary of Defense Mattis once famously said, look, you need to unleash me from the tether of fuel because it's a vulnerability on the battlefield. So just a recognition that reliance upon fossil fuels, we both need to reduce our reliance on them, and also their vulnerability on the battlefield. So that's just the first lens <laughs> of three. The second is just adaptation, which is defined as the adjustment in the natural human systems in anticipation of or response to a changing environment. So what we realize is that we are off track to meet our 
Paris Climate Accord goals. And so we need to adapt and change our systems and our built infrastructure to reflect that. And so climate change is going to impact national security infrastructure, both on military installations and off military installations. We need to have climate resilient military bases uh, in, in the face of increasing extreme weather, which we know will increase in both scope and frequency. I'll just put a plug in just the last few days. The United States just issued its first ever national climate resilient report and plan, which is worth reading for your listeners, getting at this idea of adaptation as a security issue. And then the final sort of lens I think about Major Bob and Reith is this notion of climate response. And I think that's where a lot of people want to jump into, but I think we, we have to understand mitigation and adaptation and where that plays in. But I do think climate response is where things get really, really interesting. And that gets to your question about threat accelerant and catalyst for conflict. So this means in the face of climate exacerbated events that the military will be called upon to respond to events at home and abroad. Domestically, this means the defense support of civil authorities, which I think is going to stress the National Guard and U.S. Coast Guard in increasing numbers because they have special authorities, Title 32 authorities for the uh, National Guard, Title 14, Title 10 for the Coast Guard. And so we're going to see, I think, increasing reliance upon those two branches of the military to, to respond. And internationally, we're seeing just an increase in what's called HADR, as you listeners know, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. The U.S. military has the resources, logistics, and personnel to sort of be a global first responder. So that's going to increase in um, U.S. missions as well. The former Secretary of the Navy just testified to Congress, and he said, look, when I was Secretary of the Navy, I would get a request for humanitarian assistance, disaster response once every two weeks, right? So that is an uptick in increasing demand signal for at least the U.S. Navy, and I'm sure the Army and Air Force and Space Force Coast Guard is increasing as well. And so to your question, it's a long way of saying, you know, what is a threat accelerant? What is a, what is a catalyst for conflict? I'll just offer that climate change will destabilize the physical environment. So yes, we've always had extreme weather. It's going to increase extreme weather in frequency and intensity. Yes, we we have food and water scarcity around the world. We're going to see more drought and more food insecurity. Yes, there's going to be sea level rise and changing maritime boundaries, but that sea level rise is going to increase faster, particularly with the melting of the Arctic ice caps. Yes, there's going to be health issues, but those are going to be increasing in number and frequency because of vector-borne diseases related to changing climate. That relates to catalyst for conflict, where I think is where the rubber meets the road and where we're seeing this political instability. That's how I think about this idea of climate security. So, so you mentioned adaptation. In a recent article you wrote, you coined another term I found fascinating, which is the law of national security adaptation. So you defined adaptation as sort of this adjustment of our human systems to meet the threat. And so in this article, you you talk about how there's this legal framework to protect specifically the Department of Defense. So can you talk a little bit about what, again, what that term means? Yeah, no, thank you. And the article was actually just posted just the last week or two on the Northwestern University Law Review. They had a special edition on climate change. And I was honored to provide and shed some light on this idea of, of national security adaptation. Now that I'm outside the military and I retired from the military six years ago, I'm in a lot of different spaces of environmentalists who don't really understand the military and 
they don't not really focused on the unique challenges that are in the military. And when they think of adaptation, they're thinking of like state and local zoning laws to armor shorelines or passing different legislation to make it more climate resilient. They don't really understand or have an appreciation of just how complex and important an issue is within the military fence line. So I thought this paper, it was worthwhile to, to do a dive into national security adaptation in the military. Um, and it was sort of a little bit of back to the future when I was a Navy JAG, an environmental attorney. I was in Hampton Roads, Virginia, where the sea is rising, the soil is sinking, and we're looking at how can we adapt this military base, these military installations uh, for more of a climate destabilized future. And it was a very, very challenging problem. As your listeners may know, the Department of Defense owns is an enormous landowner, about $1 trillion, maybe more, of property around the world. And if that property is vulnerable to climate impacts, the military is going to have a, a readiness issue. So I, I viewed it as this law of national security adaptation. I'm happy to chat about sort of this precise law that involved in that. But there's really three different risks associated with it. The first is if a military installation is vulnerable to, to climate change, there's going to be damage to infrastructure that has broad economic consequences. That's just smart taxpayer stewardship to protect the these important infrastructure uh, bases and that'll harm and harm the health of local economy which is often inextricably linked to the installation if the installation is not resilient the second is just the security readiness consequences it hinders military operational readiness and undermines the ability to project power and support key allies around the globe when i was a jag in hampton roads uh, Hurricane Sandy came very close to being a direct shot at Hampton Roads, and it made kind of a right hook at the end up towards New Jersey and New York that would have had devastating consequences for, I think, the Norfolk Naval Station, which is the largest Navy base in the world. And the third uh, I would offer risk is that, again, it, it harms the military's own capacity to respond to climate-induced natural disasters here and around the world. So I thought this law of national security adaptation was important to kind of unpack both its risks. And I'm happy also to talk about, you know, where that law is found. Yeah, I'd like to kind of explore that a little bit, probably a cliff note version of the paper. And, and we'll link the paper on the show notes when this airs so folks can dive deeper into it. But what I found fascinating is, is that it's sort of this interplay of federal law and local law, but it's a unique issue because right? Federal installations are governed by federal law. So how does that interface with potential local environmental restrictions or local laws and the relationship between the two? Um, and so, sir, you could, you will articulate it far better than I can, just unpacking a little bit about what this framework looks like. Right. So it sort of flips this federalism model on its head in some respects, right? If you're, you're in Charlottesville, Virginia, and you want to build a home or, or have some sort of uh, climate resilient infrastructure in Charlottesville. It's going to be basically state of Virginia and Charlottesville, basically zoning and ordinances are going to govern that. If you're in a military installation, I mean, that state and local laws do not have a enforceable element on a local base, right? So the law of national security adaptation, there's really four different components. The first is just you know, the constitutional law aspect that within the property clause from everyone's one all year property, Congress has the power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the property belonging to the United States. 
Property belonging to the United States is U.S. military national security infrastructure, military installations. So that combined with what's called as the enclave clause in the Constitution, this essentially gives Congress and by its proxy, the federal government authority to essentially adapt to climate change on military installations. So that's just a constitutional law basis. The second basis is just sort of land use controls and executive branch regulations. Your listeners may or may not be familiar with this idea of a unified facilities criteria, which is a, essentially a zoning regulation that governs building standards across the federal infrastructure and federal uh, facilities. The third is just environmental law that has implications for adaptation measures and controls, in part because there's broad sovereign immunity waivers within each environmental law that apply to the federal government. So the Clean Water Act, the federal government has to comply with the Clean Water Act and state and local laws in the same manner and same extent as any other non-governmental entity. And fourth is sort of the specific legislative measures that are focused on protecting national security infrastructure. The most famous one is this idea of the Readiness and Environmental Program Integration Act, which actually allows the DOD to enter into partnerships with property owners outside the military fence line to prevent encroachment, to potentially in invest in climate resilient investments, as well as yearly Defense Authorization Act, which often have adaptation measures in them to address this idea. So that's a mouthful. I apologize. But this is really fundamentally important when you think about it's not just taxpayer stewardship. It's also some of the most important equipment and important property in the world. And we think about the military's ability to execute its mission. If it's not protected, then uh, the, the military mission is going to be undermined. And there are some military bases. One comes to mind in Florida Homestead Air Force Base, which has been dramatically scale back after a hurricane occurred in the 1990s. And so it's just good stewardship, just good common sense to prepare our bases for this climate destabilized future. And so these four different areas that the law kind of converges to give us sort of a roadmap of how we're going to currently and in the future protect our DOD infrastructure. You mentioned that this this issue of protecting the infrastructure and protecting our national security and our bases and the and the capabilities that they have. It's one of the issues that both sides of the aisle agree on, which can sometimes be pretty rare. I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about why that is. Right. And I think that at least outside the legal academy and outside the environment that I'm in, I, climate change is politicized in, in many respects, but you're exactly right in that when we th start thinking about safeguarding military installations, there's a sense of bipartisanship that exists and a little bit of coming together that is missing in other other contexts. I think there's probably two reasons for that. And this is some of my running addresses this. One is that the military and intelligence communities are largely, not entirely, but are largely apolitical, and they, they've been pretty consistent about future threats posed by, by climate change. The National Intelligence Estimate has issued quite a few reports about how climate change is going to be a real threat multiplier and, and catalyst for conflict around the world. And it just sort of provides a, the latest intelligence assessment, and hopefully the political leaders and military leaders will act upon that. The most recent National Intelligence Report had 18 different agencies, 18 different intelligence agencies all agreeing on this idea, which is, that's a sort of a rare consensus. So I think that the military can help sort of validate climate science and climate risks. 
and some other scholars have have written about this. And in some respects, we start talking about protection of sovereignty, territorial integrity, and things along those lines. Those are kind of areas where I think the environmental climate community and the military community sort of overlap. To put it bluntly, I think there's also political economy reasons. Military bases have a huge environmental or other economic impact, and members of Congress are accountable to their constituencies, right? So they want to safeguard their bases, they want to keep them healthy, they want to keep them resilient, and they want to keep, you know, there's an element of keeping the money flowing to their respective jurisdictions to protect and safeguard. I will say this, that surprises people, but in the National Defense Authorization Act, under the Trump administration, Biden administration, and Obama administration, there was all climate adaptation pieces in those bills that were signed by those presidents, right? And they have very different views on climate change, but there's a certain element of we need to do this as what's best for the military base, what's best for the country. So, so looking at the four aspects of the law of national security adaptation, is this sufficient? What needs to change moving forward to continue to keep up with the threat? Or are you pretty comfortable with the with the way in which it's currently working to protect our assets? And if something does need to change, which one of the four prongs of this legal framework you think will be most helpful moving forward to protect the DOD? Right. I, well, I think there's work to be done by both Congress and the executive branch. So I'll take two, two of those prongs. I do think there's three or four things I think to keep an eye on that I think are, are important. One is just every single year, you know, read the National Defense Authorization Act to see how it's addressing climate adaptation on military bases. And usually there's something in there, usually one or two, three or four things that are in that that bill that address climate change. So that's sort of a gradual evolving response, which I think is healthy and is good. The second is, this is very politically controversial, but you know, at some point we need to start thinking about our decision-making around the base realignment or whether or not bases should take into account climate risk and whether or not they're going to stay open or closed. So outside the military, there's sort of an active scholarship on managed retreat and moving communities away from climate risks. That's happening in Louisiana, some Native American communities. But in the military, we, don't, we hate the idea of retreat, right? <laughs> retreat is a bad, bad term. But I think that at some point, there's going to be a realization that, that some military bases need to either invest or they need to maybe pull back. And that's going to be a very, very politically fraught discussion. I don't think that we've had that as much as we should in this country. I also think that the you know looking at force structure, I have been pretty consistent in my analysis. And I think it's uh, fair to say that the U.S. Coast Guard and our National Guard men and women are going to need more resources, especially as we're looking at their authorities they have and this increase in defense support to civil authorities. I think the last one's a little bit harder, so I'll give you a, I'll give you the fourth one, which is I think that the United States has not culturally, in the same way that other nations, has seen itself as an Arctic nation, and the Arctic is warming two to three times the pace of the rest of the world, and we are I think undercapitalized. We've kind of lost a little bit of our ability to operate in the Arctic in the way that we should, and so I think like putting resources, Coast Guard icebreakers, and just operating more in the Arctic is something that we should see. That's not really necessarily related to national security adaptation, but I think that the future is really, really going to be of increasing importance in the North Pole area. For my final question, I want to move outside of the domestic focus and into the international. My question is, 
looking at the Russia-Ukraine conflict, how has that conflict been impacted by environmental considerations? And I recognize that as a probably a very loaded final question, but I at least wanted to touch on it before we ended today because I think it's extremely relevant. No, we have to talk about Russia-Ukraine at some point, how that affects this discussion. And I'll put in a plug. I, I just wrote this paper for the Ohio State Law Journal, which is available online, ready to download. We can put in the show notes, maybe, titled Environmental War, Climate Change, and, and the Russia-Ukraine War. So as a baseline, and your reader, your listeners know this, but the Russian military in a international armed conflict, there's been a wholesale disregard of international humanitarian law, law of armed conflict throughout the conflict, as well as it applies to the environment, right? We've seen dams being attacked. We've seen the physical environment, the human environment, nuclear power plants attacked, complete violation of Hague, Geneva, aspects of additional protocol one. And so how that is held accountable is, is remains to be seen, but you know the environment is an enormous aspect of, it, of what's happening there that deserves more attention. The second is the idea of energy security, which is the idea that petrostates such as Russia, such as other nations, there's got a geopolitical shift that's underway as Russia finds new and willing customers in India and uh, China and has moved away from, from Europe. Uh, India and China have found a lot of cheap Russian oil and gas. And I think that the Russia-Ukraine conflict showcased sort of the challenge of relying upon unreliable partners like Russia for, for your energy future. Like Germany and other nations in Europe are heavily relying upon Russia investing in pipelines. And that's just an unreliable source. So in, in some respects, this could expedite, it could speed up, accelerate renewable energy writ large. And I also think that there's broad implications for geopolitics, particularly in the Arctic. Two of the members of the Arctic Council, Finland and Sweden, have sought NATO membership. Finland's a member. Sweden's, I think, about to be a member. So now you have seven of the eight Arctic states are parts of NATO. The one that's not is Russia. So I think hopefully this conflict ends soon. But when the dust settles, you're going to see a transformed Arctic, both environmentally because of climate change and also geopolitically with the seven nations now NATO. So that's, I think, an, an area to, to keep an eye on. Fascinating, sir. Well, with that, it's about time to wrap up before we sign off. Any final thoughts before we end today's chat? Thank you for highlighting this issue. Thank you, uh, Major Bob Marie, for your your service. I know you, you're, you're told that all the time, uh, but you and your listeners in the Army JAG team and all the people who are serving who are listening, uh, really thank you. I know it's it can be challenging, and I think I realized how challenging it is once I'm outside the military. has been outside for a few years. Uh, on your families and uh, continue to serve your country it is just, it's a noble thing to do and it's it involves sacrifice. So I, I really mean it when I say, I, I really, really appreciate you serving. I, I love seeing smart young people following me and, and, and serving their country. Well, sir, thank you for your 20 years of service as well. Yeah. And I think that once you're outside the military, you realize all the sacrifices you make as you are in a lot of um, audiences and a lot of communities that don't really fully understand the military and, and they don't understand all the sacrifice that goes into it. I think in some respects, when we are serving, we're surrounded by all these selfless mission-focused people who love their country and it's just a different environment. The last thing I'll say is if your listeners are going to the American Bar Association Conference, which is held next month, 
in Washington, D.C. I am really excited about this panel I'm organizing <laughs> with Admiral Allen, uh, Sherry Goodman. Actually, she did coin the term uh, threat accelerant and um, catalyst for conflict, as well as Admiral Moore, the Coast Guard Deputy Commander Atlantic Area. We're going to talk about climate security. We're going to talk about the Arctic. We're going to go really deep into these, the, the, these things we talked about. So that's on November 17th at the ABA in Washington, D.C. So should be a great conversation. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to that. Awesome, sir. Thank you so much for letting us know. Thank you again for your service and for taking the time to chat with us today and for your expertise. It's always good to see you. For our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for future episodes of NSL Unscripted. This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.